process automation is defined as a centerpiece of digitalization efforts, where workflow engines are used as a vital building block in modern architectures. In this episode of Cocktails, we talk to the author of Practical Process Automation, Orchestration and Integration in Microservices and Cloud-Native Architectures, where we explore the relationship of automation and workflow engines, the tools and technologies to successfully implement process automation, as well as the relevance of isolation and boundaries in automation. We also dive deep into RPA, or Robotic Process Automation, how organizations are finding success with it, the risks involved, and why he considers it as a short-term painkiller. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. All right, welcome to episode 37 of the Coding Over Cocktails podcast. My name is Kevin Montalbo. Joining us from Sydney, Australia is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hey, David. Hi, Kevin. All right, and let me introduce our guest for this episode. Throughout his career in software development, our guest has helped in automating highly scalable core workflows at global companies, including T-Mobile, Lufthansa, and Zalando. He has also contributed to various open source workflow engines. He is the co-founder and chief technologist of Komunda, an open source software company reinventing workflow automation. He also co-authored Real Life BPMN, a popular book about workflow modeling and automation. His latest book, Practical Process Automation came out just March of this year, and we'll be talking about it today. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us for a round of cocktails is Bern Rooker. Hi, Bern. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails. Hi, Karen. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. So uh, I guess we should start by defining process automation. So maybe uh, you can give us a a nice definition of process automation. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I can give a nice definition. So the, I mean, process automation is a pretty broad topic. In general, it means you want to automate typically the control of some kind of process, or I would at least limit it to some kind of business process in this in this conversation. But this is still a very big field. So we can use very different means to automate processes. It can be... Um, it can be uh, something like RPA. We probably talk about that later on, robotic process automation. It can be something very low code. It can be software development. And there are a lot of areas in software development to automate processes very different ways. Um, so in general, it's very important because we, we need to automate much more nowadays um, for, for a lot of reasons in digital transformation to be more agile, to be more efficient, to be... Um, yeah, just more compliant with certain processes and so on and so forth. There are a lot of reasons for automating. Um, but the ways we can do that are really, um, there are a lot of them. And that also makes the topic so overloaded and sometimes so complicated to talk about it. And I guess that's why you came up with the title of having practical uh, process <laughs> automation is because there are so many of them? Actually not. (laughs) So um, let me try to clarify that. So I I do that in the foreword of the book. So I I, I try to sort out the market a little bit. And I focus on one, let's say, segment of the process automation market, which is what I call developer-friendly process automation. And I could even narrow that down 
to develop a friendly process automation by using a technology like a workflow engine. That's kind of what I'm looking at in the book. Um, I tried to make that clear in the subtitle of the book. Um, right, and that's what I'm looking at. I, I, I call it practical because it's basically rooted in all, all the real life experiences I did with a lot of companies, customers over the last yeah, almost 15 years. Uh, that's mm -hmm. why I call it practical. I'm not so much in just thinking about theory and concepts. I always want to know, okay, what are the customers are doing? What are the real life problems they are stumble upon every day? And that's why I call it practical. And do you, do you go through case studies in the book of real life use cases? In a way, yes. I mean, uh, you probably know that. So very often you, you have an NDA, you can't openly talk about the most interesting problems or the failure stories, which are normally the ones you can learn from most. Um, so it's, it's normally not easy to disclose use cases. So um, what I do in the book, I, I relate it to, let's say, relatively real life cases, like also I'm looking at order fulfillment or customer onboarding or certain processes, certain scenarios we see at every customer. And I weave in the learnings I did at the customers very concretely without naming them, without making it a concrete case study. But I think that works relatively well. So, so far, I could get good feedback for that. And then I also try to be consistent in the example, not to switch it in every chapter, because that's normally a bit annoying as a, as a reader. And on what makes a process complex? Is it is it the uh, steps within a process and the decision making uh, within those steps? Is it transaction volume? Is it uh, infrastructure and technology? What what part of it makes? It it's typically a mixture of all of them. So it's. Um, First of all, it's kind of the number of steps. I find that even one of the most important things to look at first. Um, do I look at like one or two steps only? Then I'm not really looking at what I call process automation. That's more task automation. I want to automate a single task uh, in a certain scenario. Um, but if I have a lot of tasks in a sequence and probably go left or right for uh, under certain circumstances, then this is really process automation. And then I'm I can look at like the number of steps, which normally relates to how many, for example, different IT systems I have to integrate, how many different teams I have to um, send tasks to, how many teams I have to interact to, um, to basically specify the process or roll it out. Um, I might have to look at the, the size of the organization, uh, the uh, technical environment I integrate with, of course, the volume I wanna run over that. It's a very different thing if I run one process a day or if I run a million per second or whatever. So um, these are all aspects that count into the complexity of, of a process, yeah. And when we, when we uh, talk about, say, for example, uh, API design and implementation, we have a, a methodology called API First where we, where we get stakeholders in a room and we collaborate on the design and we iterate through the design with those stakeholders before any implementation. Do you recommend a sort of similar process with UML diagrams and that sort of thing, sort of with the stakeholders to define the process upfront before any implementation? Um, yeah. So if we look at process automation and workflow engines, there is something um, called BPMN, which I find super interesting, business process modeling notation. It's an ISO standard for defining these processes. So I wouldn't go for UML. You could probably do that, but BPMN is much more 
advanced in in how we can express um, processes. And one of the um, one of the big features of BPMN is that you can execute these models directly. There's not no weird translation, no code generation. It's simply it's defined how a workflow engine has to execute that model, and that gives you um, a lot of power also for the early phases, because normally, of course, you start with a, with a very often a drawing on the whiteboard, discussing certain requirements, probably drawing a first model, but then you can go into exploration very quickly. You can deploy that on a real engine, and then probably you don't automate all the service tasks you want to automate later on, but you do um, what's called a user task. So you, you open up a form for the user um, instead in the first step. So you can click through a process model and say, okay, this now opens a form that would normally not happen because now it's automatically whatever is sent to Salesforce and so on and so forth. But it, it allows you to discuss certain requirements with business stakeholders, which normally don't think in abstract models. They think in, in, in forms and screens and tasks and what happens next. And um, this allows you to get into that, that iteration of understanding the process, automating it step-by-step, step, improving it um, very quickly. And that's a super actually super powerful concept we and we've seen that working quite often yeah i understand and is what about the developers themselves do they require any specific skill set to implement process automation it's i mean it's kind of what i um the struggle i also have in the book um so if you look at that topic specifically it depends very much on the tooling um you use and i try to in the book i try to be as tool independent as possible i mean i co-founded a <laughs> the process automation vendor. So um, you can't always be a hundred percent independent, um, but I try to. And for for this question, it's the same problem. So you have to look at the specific toolings, and there is a bigger variety of these toolings. If I look at workflow engines and what I call developer friendly workflow engines, um, then then the idea is to bring this methodology and that technology into the normal world of the developer. So it means that you can still write code in the programming language you, you normally write it. You can write test cases as you normally write it. You can use um, continuous integration, continuous deployment like you normally do. You put it in your version control and that's the, the workflow engine is not an alien in that, in that regard. And then if you succeed with that, and there are a couple of tools which are really good at that, then it's it's not much you have to learn as a developer. Yeah, you basically have to learn probably that language like BPMN. Um, you of course have to understand what's a workflow and what does it do for me. What's the API in order to use it? Um, but just as an example, I'm doing uh, these trainings for O'Reilly also um, as a complement to the book. It's a three hours training, so we don't have much time, and we do a live lab, and the attendees automate their first process including a service task, writing some code in roughly 20 to 25 minutes. And right. if they have coding experiences, it's not a big deal, actually. Mm -hmm. the, the, the big complexity is normally then the next step. Like, hey, what's the real API? How, how do I integrate that? What, what are all the parameters? How do I do the data flow in the process? That's not so much a technical problem of how do I use a workflow engine. It's more like, if you have a complex problem to solve, it's, it's I mean, it's complex. <laughs> I understand. Well, you, you did dedicated an entire chapter of your book to autonomy, boundaries, and isolation. Uh, how, what are, tell us about these concepts and how they influence uh, how we automate. Yeah. Process. So maybe I give you a 
I can give you a bit of the background story why this ended up as a complete chapter in the book. And actually, the next chapter is also rooted in the, in the same story. So if we look back in history, like um, let's say 10 years back, there, was, there were these ideas of BPM and SOA. That was pretty hot, like 10, 15 years back. And BPM for business process management and SOA for service-oriented architecture. And the idea was that we build services in the, in the SOA layer, and then we um, basically plug them together in a process on the BPM layer. That was kind of the architecture you always saw, the pictures you saw. Um, it was always compared to Lego. You had that Lego building breaks, the services, and then you just build the process. And that didn't work too well in a lot of companies for a couple of reasons. Um, but the, the big reasons, which were basically all the same, were, okay, the tooling was not really good at the time. It was totally not developer-friendly. It was very, very unhandy, but that, that was the one side. But the other side, architecture-wise, um, was that you distributed, um, in a way, ownership. So normally, if you implemented some business requirement, you had to adjust the process and you had to adjust at least one service. And that meant you have to walk around asking different teams, different people, hey, can we coordinate on the deployment? How can we, how can we get that feature alive? And it normally even was organized like, hey, there is this BPM team. Let's go to the BPM folks. They have to help us with that. And this didn't really work well. And that's a lot of these learnings also led to um, these microservices ideas where you looked into, hey, let's build that one business capability. It does something meaningful for me. And then you have that one team caring about all aspects and probably even run it. And having this BPM layer doesn't, doesn't fit in there because that's kind of, you distribute the business logic into the microservice and, and a process. And there were a lot of discussions about that. And I had hundreds of them with different people um, in like especially three or four years back. And that's, this led me to write all the thoughts down in a couple of talks and then in the book and describing how you can bring that together, how that can go hand in hand. And it's, it's actually very simple, but it's important to, to understand that. So if you implement a business process, if you automate a business process, that's typically a business capability. I mean, you do order fulfillment, so that's business capability. You do whatever, uh, new bank account opening, business capability. So you, you, you implement that as a microservice, if you think in microservices at least. And then that you use certain process automation technologies, like a workflow engine, for example. It's an implementation detail. So on an architectural slide, the difference would be it's not a layer on top. It's kind of within the microservices box. And that sounds like a small change, but it's actually a huge change in terms of how you think about that. And this is how what I described in the chapter, going a lot into these questions. Um, for example, isolation means now the microservice team can fully um, decide how to automate that process. They might hard code it. They might use um, workflow engine A, workflow engine B, or whatever. Um, it's basically their decision. For, the important thing is from the outside, you don't see that. Mm -hmm. You have an API where you say, hey, kick off the um, order fulfillment, for example, and then this works. And that's an important mind shift um, we saw happening over the last years. And it works actually very well. 
what triggered this mind shift? Was it microservices themselves and these domain-specific boundaries of microservices that which kicked off that thought process? Um, I, if I look at it from the process automation perspective, yes, that was definitely the microservice um, movement. I mean, you could then ask what triggered the microservices movement because that was kind of the initial thing. And I, I think that were a lot of these problems we we had with SOA and not distributing ownership right and not um, distributing or, or not assigning that to the right teams and, and having an organization that doesn't really fit to how we implement software. And that was kind of the initial trigger, yeah. I understand. Uh, let's talk about robotic process automation. You mentioned it at the at the beginning, and I think there is some confusion about the boundaries between workflows and process automation, business process automation, and now robotic process automation. Is it just another new, an acronym that the technology industry loves to you know create? Is it something that we've been doing all the time, or is it something different? <laughs> it's RPA is an interesting topic. Um, you have to love and hate it at the same time, I think. Um, so there is, there's a one thing that for the name, for example, we can probably come to back, back to that later. I think the name is a big problem and it's not very accurate to what it does. And th that makes it more like sounding like a hype thing. But if you look at what RPA does, um, it basically means that you, that you use some, some technology to steer user interfaces automatically. And this allows you to automate things by clicking around like the computer clicks around uh, themselves and this is very powerful in a way that it can easily automate things you did manually before and if you do these kind of products normally what you get is a very instant return okay i save work i save labor i save money uh, pretty quickly and that makes it so great actually that makes it a, a big success and we see a lot of customers applying it in first products um, seeing the return and then um, start to invest more and more so that's that's the let's say the the, the good side of of rpa and um, there are a lot of good things around rpa like especially if you for example have uh, legacy systems that doesn't provide APIs, RPA can help because then it can integrate that in automation. But there's also a big risk. And I think that's not transparent enough for a lot of people or not. Um, they just don't have it uh, front of their head um, because these, these, these integrations on UIs, they're, they're typically very brittle. That's the one problem we see happening. So if you, whatever, if you just update a browser version, sometimes things break. If you update operating, if versions update. So they all normally need a lot of maintenance on a, on a very fine-grained level. Um, that's one thing probably. But what I find the, um, actually the biggest issue with RPA, and now I come back to the name and sorry for doing such a long sentence around that. But <laughs> if you say robotic process... <laughs> <laughs> robotic process automation, um, people think about processes. Mm. And this is not what RPA does. The idea of RPA is, from my perspective, task automation. They automate a single task, like, hey, enter this customer in this system or, or do this. Um, and then it's, it's still... Um, in a way, a process because you have multiple steps to do that. Hey, go in this field, go there, click there, do this. Um, 
but it's not really a process in, in uh, what I call a business process. So it's not multi-step. And if you then start to apply RPA for these real business processes, then it normally gets a mess because you start to mix granularities of clicking around in a UI and like the bigger steps in a, in a business process. Um, and yeah, and, and this gets really, uh, really problematic over time. We have a, we have a super story, uh, which we can even refer to, um, which I love with Deutsche Telekom, for example. And um, there's a whole recording of talks and slides available. So you can dive into that. And um, they also started with RPA with a, with a small use case, task automation for um, basically line diagnosis, a technician does that. He had to call in before, now he could use a phone and the bot basically steers the UI instead of a human. And that was a big success. And then they started to move into RPA and they, they ended up with, uh, I think, 3,000 bots. Um, they had millions of bot transactions, saving a lot of money with that. So it was kind of a big success. But then they ended up doing bigger processes and they understood that this is not maintainable anymore that they can't really understand the processes. They get a lot of spaghetti integration. Um, they had a lot of issues with that. Um, so then they, integrate, uh, then they did something um, which I think is the right thing to do. Then they um, separated the, the bot layer, the task automation from the process automation layer. So they, they, they added a workflow engine, which basically orchestrated certain bots. And then they pulled up the, the real process on, the, on that process orchestration layer. And then they called out for the bots whenever their task, whenever it's turned for their, their task. And that was actually a big success. And now, now they, they have this architecture for, for all bot orchestrations. And this also allows, and I find that an important aspect of RPA, this also then allows to um, replace bots with real API calls whenever possible because the business process itself doesn't really change. What's in that one box does change. You no longer use a bot, but an API. And they do that. And for, oh, that was not Deutsche Telekom, I think it was RBS who called RPA technical debt. So every bot is a technical debt because they, they basically say it's brittle. So um, we have to think about, um, yeah, basically the strategy to remove it later on. And then you can easily do that. Yeah, so right. that was a long answer. That's interesting that they defined it as technical debt. That's that's taking. I mean, most people would be just starting to embrace RPA, <laughs> <laughs> and they're so far down the track. They're saying actually, this we can now considering this technical debt. Can you elaborate on that a bit further? Yeah, the um, it's it's. I think as I said, it's 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 actually a little little bit of both sides. And I know that technical depth is a term for that is pretty, um, it always leads to discussions. <laughs> but the idea is really, okay, you can easily apply it, um, you can do it, but it's not a really long-term solution, especially because of the brittleness mm. of, of these bots. If you have a real API integration, um, that's much more stable. You can much easier test that again, all the good software development practices we know we can easily apply to API integration, um, but not to a bot. And that makes it at least a risk. I understand. So basically RPA is like a, almost like a workaround that we're, we're, we're doing UI manipulation or we're, we're scraping a PDF file or a website because there is no API available. If there was, yeah. we would do, make a direct API. Exactly. Call. 
and do it properly exactly. in the first place. And there's, there's, a, there's a second flavor to that. So even if the API is available, and that's very often the bigger problem, you don't have the right people to do a proper integration. You don't have software developers or you, do, you have them, but they have other priorities. And that's what we see a lot. And I think this is the biggest risk we have there because then you can, I mean, on the good side, you can automate something even if you don't have these people at hand. If you, if you use RPA, that's cool. Um, but in the long run, that gets very risky. And for example, telecom does that. They um, very often, because I also ask them, hey, if you do all these RPA stuff, doesn't IT hate you? <laughs> it's like, I mean, they, they probably get all the, the problems with that. And I said, no, no, we even, um, we even uh, fostered our communication because now if we, if we want to do an integration, we talk to each other and they say, okay, we, we can do that. There's an API, no problem, but we don't have time now. We can do that in whatever, a year from now. Why don't you do an RPA bot in, in between? So they even propose that as a, as a temporary solution. And if you apply that for, for, for this kind of thinking, um, I think then it's, then it's fine. You just have to manage that risk. And of course, the risk is that you don't replace it in a year. <laughs> but, um, and this, is yeah. what you, this is what you refer to as a short-term painkiller, RPA being a short-term painkiller. Yeah. Short-term solution before we can get to where we want to be with this task, which yeah. is a, a proper API implementation of the, of the yeah. process. Yeah, exactly. And we'll always painkillers have the risk that you don't feel the pain anymore. So Yeah. Interesting. You've been doing this for, uh, as you say, around 15 years or so, and and you've obviously seen a bunch of evolution in in, in the vendors and the process and microservices and um, the, the way you architect uh, business processes, like you're saying, through autonomy, boundaries and isolation. Um, where how's, How do you see it continuing to evolve? Where are we at now and where are we moving towards in the future, do you think? Yeah, so I can... I mean, a couple of things. Again, if you look on the, um, on the higher level of process automation, I think we see um, these different also categories of tools not melting together, I wouldn't say that, but getting closer together. So we currently, we have RPA. They also um, extend in their execution capabilities for, um, for automating processes. Um, there's process mining. That's a pretty hot topic as well currently. So if you have implemented processes which are not in, in, in a workflow engine, in a, in, a, in a process automation tool, we still get some visibility and understanding these processes. And we have these, um, yeah, what Forrester calls DPA, digital process automation. That's kind of the category of these workflow engine tools where we are also located. And we extend our intelligence as well as the integration to RPA. So there, these are the big three categories and somewhere in the middle there, there are some use cases melting. And I, I think this all has just started. So we're seeing um, a lot of adoption of these tools. So uh, I, I would assume for the next five to 10 years, we, we simply see people doing it. So there, I don't expect too much big disruptive ideas here, to be honest. I mean, we had a, a couple of them, but overall, we simply have to do it. <laughs> That's my feeling. Um, of course, on, on the level down, there, there is a lot of innovation and, and disruption happening. So, for example, most of the tools are now also provided as a cloud service. That's a big change. 
Now you have cloud services for providing process automation, for providing the analysis. So it's much easier to apply them. Um, and we can do it on a very different scale, for example. So um, we have use cases now where we look into um, payments, for example, or trading. So, so high volume, low latency use cases, which we never could tackle with these kind of technologies 10 years back. So you can apply it to much more use cases nowadays. So there's a lot of this kind of innovation happening. Um, so my expectation is that we simply also see it much more over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I'm guessing technology is going to push the boundaries. Whilst the process the, itself doesn't change, things like edge computing and Internet of Things devices and stuff being incorporated within business processes and workflows is going to make sure that the tool sets and vendors have to be able to incorporate these technologies within their, within their own state. Oh, yeah accommodate a business process but under the underlying business process itself really is is not changing significantly as you said that it's really now about that digital transformation that everyone's going through and for the next five to ten years is just going to go through the motions of starting to to digitize their business. yeah i, I would but, agree i i can i can double down probably on what he said with the with the iot stuff so what i'm also seeing is there there are even a lot of new news case emerging in that sense, like having a lot of events, um, getting insights out of the events, and that leads to a lot of like automated processes where you have to react on stuff. Um, so there, there are a lot of things happening. But despite that, it's exactly like you said, we, we simply have to, to digitalize a lot of things now. Bern, very interesting to talk to you. Where can our listeners uh, follow you on social media and, and, and stay in touch with what you're writing and doing? So the easiest is always um, either to follow me on Twitter um, or on LinkedIn. I mean, those are typical sources, not a big surprise. Um, and your handles? Yeah. Um, it's Bernd Rücker. So um, if you don't know how to write that, you probably make a hint in the in the podcast, but it's B-E-R-N-D-R-U-E-C-K-E-R. And that handle is typically used uh, everywhere, GitHub, LinkedIn, Twitter, and so on and so forth. Great. And uh, your book, Practical Process Automation is available at uh, Amazon.com, I'm assuming, published by O'Reilly. <laughs> and also yeah. on, uh, under an O'Reilly. There, there is even, if you go to the, um, to the homepage, maybe that's um, easier to, to remember. It's processautomationbook.com. You can even get a, a currently a free PDF copy that's sponsored. So um, for the next, I don't remember exactly, six months or so. Bernard, thanks very much for uh, your time today. It was very interesting to have you on the program. Thanks, David. All right, that's a wrap for this episode of Coding Over Cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers. <laughs>